Hey, howdy, space nerds. As you know, this podcast is supported by you, the listener. As you may know, we have a brand new gift for those of you that make a donation to this program, our very own mission patch. You can pick one up for yourself by visiting wmfe.org slash patch. The contribution goes straight to this podcast. As always, thanks for your support. Now let's get on to the show. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A spacecraft set to launch next week will help scientists discover and identify alien worlds. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, launches on a Falcon 9 rocket from Florida's space coast. And once in space, it will look for planets outside our solar system by observing nearby stars. Our guest on this episode hopes the discoveries of these planets, called exoplanets, can help us find other Earth-like planets and eventually the evidence of life outside our world. Sarah Seeger is an astrophysicist at MIT and the deputy science director of the TESS mission. Professor Seeger, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. So let's start first. Um, Hopefully an easy question for you. Um, What is an exoplanet? An exoplanet is a planet that orbits a star other than our sun. Every star is a sun, and if our sun has planets, it sure makes sense that other stars do also. In the last 20 years, astronomers have found thousands and thousands of exoplanets. We think every star has a planetary system. And how long has this this thought process been around? I mean, has this been the dawn of astronomy, which just thought that there have been planets there? Honestly, it's been thousands of years since the time of the Greek philosophers. People have wondered, you know, what's out there? Are there planets out there? Are there humans out there? Is something else out there? But it's just been recently that um, astrophysicists like yourself and astronomers have, have recently confirmed the existence of these exoplanets, right? Right, pretty much. You know, the main thing is just like all of our technologies seems to be getting better all the time. Like we, everyone has a cell phone now, which is way more, every, almost everyone has a smartphone nowadays, which is way more powerful than, you know, computers from decades ago. So really our technology got better and better and astronomers were able to adapt and apply it and find planets. So how, how do astronomers and, and astrophysicists actually find these exoplanets? Can you kind of explain the process? Sure. Well, there's actually many, many, there's like five or six different ways to find them, but the most popular one is by what we call transiting planets. If its uh, orbit is specially aligned, a planet will go in front of the star, as seen from our telescope. And astronomers can measure the brightness of a star as a function of time. Imagine that you point your camera, well, sophisticated camera on a special telescope at a patch of stars. You monitor the star brightness, and if a planet just by chance happens to go in front of that star, you'll see a little drop in brightness. And when the planet finishes transiting the star, the star returns to its normal brightness. And believe it or not, over the last decade, thanks partly to NASA's Kepler Space Telescope and astronomers on the ground all over the world, believe it or not, it's now a very standard set of procedures to uncover planets that way. And I mean, what what kind of things can you determine from um, planets when you're using uh, kind of a, a survey system like uh, like the transiting method um, that that Kepler's doing? I mean, what, what 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 can you tell about these planets? Well, after some work to make sure it's a planet and not an artifact of the data or a binary star, you actually can tell the size of the planet um, relative to the size of the star. And if you know the size of the tar- star, you can tell the size of the planet. And you can learn something about its orbit. What kind of things are, are we discovering about these, these exoplanets um, that Kepler's found? What, what do these planets look like? Well, we don't know what they look like at all. We just know their sizes, actually. So in some case, 
uh, we can learn a little more about them if we know, uh, sometimes we can learn a little more about them. But let's just say that even with just the size and orbit, Kepler has uncovered some astonishing things. Kepler has found that the most common type of planet in our galaxy, as far as we know so far, it's not an Earth-sized planet. It's not even a Jupiter-sized planet. It's something in between, about two to three times the size of Earth. And why it's so astonishing is our solar system has nothing like that type of planet. Not only that, uh, we don't know for sure, but all the evidence from Kepler and other exoplanet studies shows that our solar system is not very common. Huh. You know, like originally, people just expected that everywhere we looked, every star would have a system very similar to our planetary system, with a giant planet like Jupiter relatively far from the star, and Earth kind of in the Goldilocks zone. But instead, Kepler found hot super-Earths, planets orbiting so close to the star, they're hot, their surface is hot enough to melt rock. It may have liquid lava lakes. Kepler found like a Jupiter-sized planet where Earth should be, and the list just goes on and on. Huh. Does that change the way that, that people approach the field of astronomy and astrophysics now? I mean, is that kind of groundbreaking and, and earth-shattering? Pardon the pun. Definitely. I mean, the problem is we don't understand how planets formed, and this just threw a wrench into our system <laughs> because, you know, just with the one system, our own solar system, for all those years, decades, centuries, people had a nice little theory about how planets form, and now that's upended. Huh. And what was, what was the theory before, before all this data came out? Well, the general theory is that giant planets like Jupiter would basically be the mainstay, the main planet out there, because we think that Jupiter formed by accreting rocks and dust like and ice, like a giant dirty snowball growing rapidly, and that Jupiter was able to suck in everything around it. Like I call it like a cosmic vacuum cleaner. By its gravity, it basically collected everything near it. Sometimes we joke, it's like Microsoft or Google, something starts to form and just kind of dominates, and then nothing else can form. And so we expected to see a bunch of Jupiter mass planets at Jupiter's distance. Um, but instead, we don't see that. We see, at least as far as we can't see all types of planets and all types of systems, but it appears that Jupiters are not that common, actually. And the data so far shows that small planets, like stunted growth, it's like as if you go somewhere and you're expecting to see humans and you just end up seeing uh, dwarfs. We see all these smaller planets. They're not like Earth. They're not like Jupiter. They're not even like Neptune, but we don't totally know what they are yet. Huh. Now, now how does that change the, the kind of idea that, that, you know, we might be able to find life somewhere else in, in, in the galaxy or, or in the universe? I mean, does this, this change the, the place that people are looking, or do we still even think that there's signs of life out there? Well, it, in answer to your question, does it change yes and no? First of all, we're so, like, the diversity of planets out there is overwhelming. And sometimes we just, we're not almost smart enough, really, to think of all possibilities. So the search for life still focuses on what people have been thinking about for a very long time, a rocky planet with a solid surface, with a thin atmosphere that's in its star's Goldilocks zone. That is a distance from the star, so as heated by the star, the planet is not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. And have, that's the yes. Yeah, that's the part where, and, but the diversity makes us think well and scratch our heads and think maybe that's not only the place we should look. There could be more massive planets with more massive atmospheres 
here on Earth we're worried about parts per million of carbon dioxide. Imagine a planet that had two times or a hundred times or a thousand times the carbon dioxide that Earth does. That planet would be awfully warm, maybe too hot. But you can imagine a massive planet with a massive carbon dioxide atmosphere much further away from its star than Earth is from our sun, and that planet might still be habitable. So we're trying to think more broadly. Now, those initial candidates for um, planets that could have life, rocky surface um, atmosphere like that, has um, has Kepler been able to identify any candidates that, that could have those signs of life? Like possibly. I mean, Kepler has identified, we'll just say technically, potentially habitable worlds, planets that are Earth-sized and that are in the Goldilocks zone of their host star. But Kepler's small planets, uh, that's it. I mean, we won't really be able to learn any more information about them because the Kepler stars are so distant. They're thousands of light years away. Mm -hmm. So we just have to sort of live with, hey, there may be some out there, but we can't really look at them more closely and find out more. Now, it's my understanding that TESS will be looking at stars that are closer um, to us. Right. Does that change the way um, that, that we can approach this, look for, as you say, possibly habitable planets? Yes, TESS is trying to look for, TESS's goal is to look at nearby stars, although stars are all very far away. It would be stars that are, let's say, tens to hundreds of light years away and look for transiting planets there. So yes, TESS hopes to find planets orbiting in their star's Goldilocks zone that we might be able to follow up their atmospheres with um, future telescopes and then look for signs of life in the atmosphere by way of gases that might be produced by life. And how would you do that? So obviously we're not going to be able to uh, figure that out through uh, Kepler or through TESS, but, I mean, future telescopes like possibly the James Webb, would, would, would that be something that could determine what gases are on the planet? Yeah, the James Webb is our key telescope for the future. I should add, which I forgot to say, that TESS is mostly sensitive for small planets um, transiting small stars, so small red dwarf stars. They're very different from our own sun. But the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to look at these planets, planets of choice, though, not all the planets at once, but we have to very carefully narrow down our list to our favorite, absolute favorite planets. And the James Webb will be able to look at the atmospheres as the planet goes in front of the star and look at the light from the stars shining through the atmosphere that will pick up signatures of gases in the planet atmosphere. Now, Kepler has discovered thousands of um, these exoplanet candidates. TESS is looking to discover something on the order of tens of thousands, right? Well, we do make simulations to kind of predict approximately, how, you know, to estimate, rather, mm -hmm. how many planets it might find. And based on what we know from Kepler, we estimate that there will be thousands and thousands, several thousand planets in the data. And, and I mean, what does that mean for the, um, for the exoplanet um, community? I mean, it, it seems like in the past few years, these, these, these discoveries have just kind of taken off. I mean, what, what's going on in, in the field of study of, of exoplanets now? Well, what TESS means for the community is that we'll have now a list of planets. Think of it like a phone book, an old-fashioned phone book, or like a catalog or an address book. It'll have this huge list of planets orbiting nearby stars, transiting nearby stars that we'll be able to follow up in detail. So what it means is that people won't be only finding planets, but they'll be able to follow them up to get the planet mass. And mass and size can give us planet density. We can learn about what the planet's made of. We can follow up their atmospheres. So essentially what TESS means is we can move the entire field of exoplanets to the next step, to one of characterizing lots and lots of individual exoplanets. I mean, what kind of discoveries do you think we're going to make in, in our lifetime here in the next few decades? Oh, in our lifetime? I think the future is absolutely tremendous. I think we're going to un learn about what all these different categories of planets actually are. I think we're going to find 
Well, I can tell you what I hope we're going to find. I yeah, let's hear that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my biggest hope, honestly, is that we do find planets with signs of life on them, that we can find planets with liquid water oceans, all life as we know it needs water, and that's a great place for us to start, and that some of those planets, rocky planets that have liquid water oceans, also have gases in the atmosphere that don't belong that could be attributed to life. That's my personal dream. And, and seeing how quickly we've gone from just theorizing that there are exoplanets to identifying exoplanet candidates to now launching another uh, survey satellite, are you optimistic that, that that hope of yours will come true? I am optimistic. But, you know, it does seem like it happened quickly. But for the people working in the trenches, it's honestly been incredibly slow. Like, if you think about TESS, it's launching and everyone's going to get excited and people who haven't heard about it will hopefully hear about TESS now. But at MIT, we've been working on the concept for a decade, actually. Like, mm -hmm. that's 10 years. And a lot of sweat, blood, and tears and money have gone into making us to this time. And what, what do you kind of hope to get out of TESS? Um, what, are, what are you going to be focusing on? Well, what I'm focusing on is in my role on TESS and here at MIT, we actually have a goal. We have actually a... Um, I hesitate to call it a contractual obligation, but we do have a specific job, and our job actually is identifying planet candidates. Mm -hmm. So our job is to make sure that out of all the data, at the end of the day, we have that list of planet candidates that our test follow-up team and others can jump on and figure out whether or not it's a planet or an artifact in the data or a binary star. That's our actual job. What we hope to get beyond that is to study groups of planets. So these small planets of two to three times Earth's size, we call them mini-Neptunes, for lack of a better word. We hope that, for example, we can find a group of them around different star types and look at their atmospheres with the James Webb Space Telescope and figure out what these things are. What are these things? And so we hope to do lots of projects like that where we um, make way to understand what these crazy, bizarre exoplanets actually are. How, how quickly is, is that data going to turn around? And I know that that was a, a question that some of my listeners had before. Uh, right. Well, just sort of in general, um, TESS technically does not have any proprietary time. So in general, the data would be public immediately. However, it doesn't get public immediately because of we don't just release the raw data, but we release kind of um, analyzed or we call it analyzed or reduced data. And so initially, because, you know, when you take new data, you actually don't know in advance where the problems are going to be. Mm -hmm. So the first data sets won't be released to the public or the community until something like December of this year, December mm -hmm. 2018. But once we get things rolling and we can turn the crank very smoothly, um, the data will be released, like, from when it hits the ground until the team starts working on it. it would, and it goes through quality control and certification and all that it would be released two months or less from when it hits the ground. Even that initial turnaround time seems pretty quick there, but, uh, I mean, that, that's going to be really cool to get that data out as quickly as you guys are planning on. That's really neat. Well, people, the team and other people want it even quicker, believe it or not. But yeah. why it can be so quick is we're building on all the pioneering efforts of Kepler. Mm -hmm. And the main data pipeline is being done out of NASA Ames, and they're the same team who has been running the Kepler data pipeline. Mm -hmm. So we're reusing, we're not having to reinvent the wheel, but we're able to take what we already know and what everyone has struggled to learn over the past uh, decade or so and translate it for tests. Let me ask you this. I mean, how has the role of that kind of citizen scientist or citizen astronomer kind of changed as, as this data is so readily available? I mean, just speaking from my personal experience, I'm, I'm a journalist, but I'm able to download raw, you know, Juno pictures and, and play around with them in, on Photoshop. And it's, it's really neat and it really gets me involved. But I mean, what, what's kind of the role? How has it evolved over time? Well, it's been pretty incredible because 
the computers will only do what you tell them to do. Mm -hmm. And when we can get eyes on the data, the uh, crowdsourcing folks have found some incredible things. There's this famous star. It's called Tabby Star. Mm -hmm. And it made the news somewhat unfortunately because people thought maybe there was an alien megastructure around this star. But imagine that out of like the hundreds of thousands of stars Kepler could, could, could take data on, one of them stood out in the way that it varied with time. Like it would not have a regular periodic specific variability like transiting planets show, but it had this crazy stuff. Like all of a sudden there'd be a drop in brightness. Then nothing would happen. Then it would have like a dozen little tiny kind of scattered drops in brightness. Then it would have this, then it would have that. And so for the longest time, people had no idea what it was. Now they think it's just dust clouds that are moving around it. But that was just found by citizen scientists who can look at the data and go, wow, that is just unusual. That's unusual. And so just pattern recognition by humans um, is still better than computers. Now, I had the chance to um, go and see TESS um, at the Kennedy Space Center. I spoke with uh, the principal investigator, um, George Ricker. Um, it, it, something that I always ask uh, folks that have been working on, on these things is, uh, what are you thinking ahead of the launch? I mean, we're, we're just a, a few days away. Do you have some pre-launch nerve, pre-launch jitters, or is, uh, is it all definitely. excitement? <laughs> well, I mean, everyone has their own way of dealing with pre-launch jitters. I mean, I'm pretty excited about the launch. I invited, I'm bringing my family, like my husband and kids, and a bunch of friends, and a lot of the team is going down to see it. So I think it's going to be pretty nerve-wracking in the minutes before launch. But, I mean, knowing that you've worked on something that, that is going to space and going to be providing this, you know, invaluable data, it's got to be awesome, right? It's going to be awesome. I'd say for now, though, we're not able to decompress yet. Like, we still have, I don't know, my team's prepared. We feel prepared now, but there's always more to do. Well, I've been speaking with uh, Professor Sarah Seeger. She's an astrophysicist at MIT and also the Deputy Science Director of the TESS Space Telescope. Um, Sarah Seeger, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. You can join the conversation online. We've got a Facebook page. Search for Are We There Yet podcast. Or you can take to Twitter. The show is at AWTYMars, and I'm at SpaceBrendan. You can also follow along with more space news online at WMFE.org slash space. I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.